Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Sorry about I don't know why I did that in a silly voice, briefly. Uh, I just kind of felt like the urge to become someone else for a second. So thank you very much for tuning in to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. That's it. Just needed to get into it by being someone else in a kind of strange way. Anyway, as ever, we have got a ton of things to get through. Some fantastic questions have come in during the week and all of them urgently topical. So they're a guide to some of the key issues that we all need to make sense of uh, in the time we've got together. And for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the kind of general format which which we keep to our reflect for a bit at the beginning a kind of prologue as Frankie Howard used to call it in Up Pompeii I'll do a prologue and then uh, we'll reflect on current dramas via questions and points from the rock and roll politics community a growing growing community before all of that just a quick reminder if it's okay with all of you February the 17th Rock and Roll Politics streaming live. Tickets available now at the King's Place website. And let's face it, you won't have many clashes that evening. So why not get the ticket, put it in the diary. And we've got something to look forward to. Not only at the moment, we've got lockdown, but this terrible weather, uh, which must be even for those of us who will go out running, imposing constraints in our activities. So hopefully see you then. I think I know what my theme will be, but the evening evolves live with all kinds of twists and turns, as those of you who tune in know. Anyway, I'll let you know next week what my chosen theme will be, but there will be many other strands to that evening. My chosen theme today is the news that the government, you, could, you, you might have guessed this, that the government is about to introduce significant reforms to the NHS. The reason why I think some of you might have guessed that this might be a chosen theme is that this has been a kind of obsession of mine and indeed some of you from your questions about how best to provide public services and that the reforms that have led to the fracturing of public services, what Matt Hancock called the atomization, for example, of the NHS, have led to more chaos, more expense, much less clear lines of responsibility and accountability. And the government has reached the same conclusion, partly from the pandemic, again, a theme that we've looked at often at this uh, podcast. You know, old Johnson was like, to old Hancock, get this done. And Hancock said, I've got no power to do it. That power lies with NHS England or Public Health England. Um, and then we've got to sort out the care homes. And then Hancock will say to Johnson, we've got no power over them. And so absolutely rightly, they are putting forward reforms. We'll have to wait and see the detail. That gives them power as well as responsibility because the perversion of the chaotic reforms introduced largely by the coalition but partly in the late Blair era of New Labour is that responsibility lay with the government 
but a great deal of the power was given away to other agencies. And the result was just incoherence. And I thought it might interest you. I know quite a lot about the background and the thinking about this, because what happened when Cameron became leader of the Conservatives is that the, the, he and those around him organised a whole range of semi-private seminars to explore their thinking in areas like the delivery of public services. And they invited a few columnists along and they spent some time trying to woo me when I was a columnist writing twice a week at The Independent. And I was invited to these seminars and they were fascinating on so many different levels. Now, at that point, Cameron was looking at something called the post-bureaucratic age, rather sort of clumsy title, where they were going to wave a wand and remove all kinds of bureaucratic hurdles and empower the user of public services. And one of the ways they were going to do this, and this was absolutely clear before the 2010 general election, was to take power and responsibility for the NHS away from the health secretary. And at these meetings, they were organised by Cameron's uh, close aides, Steve Hilton, who used to arrive in a T-shirt and shorts, smoking a fag, bare feet. Oliver Letwin, one of the nicest people in politics, was very much involved. And they gave that impression, a tonal impression, to willingly gullible figures in the media that this was all part of a very modernising process in the Conservative Party and a move towards the centre ground, this focus on delivery of public services. But actually what it was, was turbocharging Thatcherism. So, for example, uh, Andrew Lansley, then the Shadow Health Secretary, would stand up at these relatively small gatherings and say, I realise when I'm Health Secretary that I will have achieved our objectives when there's a crisis in some hospitals and at 10 past 8 on the Today programme, they don't ask me, the Health Secretary, to explain what has happened. That will be the cultural change I will preside over. And Cameron would sit there taking notes, interestingly passive role. Cameron was not a generator of ideas. But Hilton, who of course went on to become a great fan of Donald Trump, a mutual fan club in the United States, and others were nodding with great enthusiasm. And what was so ironic about this period was that Cameron, if you remember, trying to copy Tony Blair, said that he could summarise his passion in three letters, N-H-S, in the way that Blair did. I can summarise my passion in three words, education, 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 before the 97 election. And yet he must have known that what they were planning was a kind of dismantling of the NHS. And that with this plan that all kinds of agencies would be responsible for delivery, not the government. And that they thought, or Lansley thought, that this would somehow or other empower the patient when actually the patient got lost in 
lines of blurred responsibility and accountability. But the real twist was this, of course. While Cameron uh, kind of agreed with this in theory as far as he gave it any thought, in practice, when he became Prime Minister, he soon realised that rightly, responsibility ultimately lay with the government and him. So you had a classic example of this. When there was a crisis in uh, the mid-staffs hospital, uh, an independent inquiry and all kinds of terrible things were exposed as going on there. The person who gave the statement in the House of Commons was Cameron, not even the health secretary, saying, I, as prime minister, will take personal responsibility to sort this out. The exact opposite of the kind of fantastical world they were in, in opposition. And in fairness to Lansley, he thought he had the go-ahead. He thought Cameron was enthusiastic for his ideas. And Cameron gave every indication that he was to Lansley. But obviously, if a government is responsible for raising the vast sums of money to pay for the NHS, it must have some responsibility as to delivery. And if, as we know is the case, governments are going to face crises again, like the one we've had with the pandemic, it can't just roll up at press conferences and say, well, I would like this to happen, but over now to, you know, Fred Bloggs from some agency to say what will happen because I've got no power. And the confusion generated by the NHS reforms was so multi-layered. I mean, the pandemic is the most recent example. But during the build-up to the 2015 election, in that winter before the election, there was a great deal of talk of hospitals being inundated because of the flu crisis of that winter. And Cameron said to Jeremy Hunt, can't you get onto the hospitals where there might be a, a no spare beds and sort them out? And Hunt had to say to Cameron, Prime Minister, we've given away the power to do this. I haven't got that power. It's with NHS England or one of the many, many other agencies devolved to local or regional areas. And clearly now, after the trauma of the pandemic, where elected ministers were held account for what happened, rightly, found they had, in some cases, no power to act, are now going to reform the NHS and incidentally bring in care homes as well because there is such an interconnection in practice but none in theory. Now the reason why this is so multi-layered in its fascination is that one of the other layers is that at the time certainly Nick Clegg as leader of the Liberal Democrats was really enthusiastic about the Lansley reforms. So you had uh, I remember, coincidentally, having a cup of tea with Clegg. He was Deputy Prime Minister. On the day the first Lansley White Paper was published, this huge document, uh, bigger and thicker than the original NHS White Paper introduced by Nye Bevan. And Nick Clegg enthused about it, saying it was a great fusion of ideas, the Lib Dem support for the local, the Tory support for a smaller state. And anyway, anyway I, can't, I can't remember the detail, but boy, did he enthuse. 
Uh, and of course, for him, it soon started to unravel when he realised his party was appalled by the propositions, or much of his party, not all. And that's when Cameron famously paused uh, the NHS reforms. But even in the version that emerged from the pause, there was this radical shake-up, which has led to this whole level of incoherence. And yet, those who raised questions during this whole period uh, were dismissed as anti-reform. Cameron used the same banal juxtaposition as Tony Blair. Reform versus anti-reform. So when Brown, Gordon Brown, as Chancellor, raised some perfectly legitimate and valid questions about Alan Milburn and Tony Blair's plans for foundation hospitals, an early example of the sort of atomization that Hancock has subsequently criticised, and so did Jeremy Hunt. He was d dismissed by Tony Blair implicitly as being anti-reform, as if the only reform that was acceptable, or existed actually, was the reform process that led to the chaotic, blurred lines of responsibility that the current government appears to be keen on remedying. And all kinds of very interesting people have come to this conclusion belatedly. Camilla, uh, Camilla Cavendish, who worked uh, in uh, Cameron's number 10 policy unit, when she left, she wrote a piece for the Sunday Times saying she realises the solution is much greater centralisation, not the fracturing that has led to this chaos. Um, and Jeremy Hunt came to realise it as Health Secretary, so has this current government. So always be wary when fashionable media narratives begin. Reform versus anti-reform was the context that made opposition to this fracturing very, very difficult. It made people seem so old-fashioned and out of date. Oh, you, you can't bear change. Whereas actually, the issue was one set of reforms against another. But it wasn't allowed in media orthodoxy. And when Brown dared to raise a few concerns, he was dismissed as old labour and anti-modernisation, all these crude terms. And now this government is doing it with the support of the former health secretary, Jeremy Hunt. I think with the support broadly of uh, Simon Stevens at NHS England, who himself is fed up with this irreconcilable dance with the health secretary or other elements of government as to precisely who is in charge and who is accountable to whom. Anyway, we'll have to await the details. And of course, there are many, many other issues as well, uh, including funding levels. You can't just say, oh, reform will do the business, we'll continue to underfund the NHS compared with equivalent countries in Europe and elsewhere. And raising that money is difficult. And especially if you're going to integrate it with care homes and try and raise the standards of care homes, all of this is costly and will involve in some form or other higher taxes. And it's not easy. The new Labour government agonised about how to put the case for higher taxes to pay for improvements in the NHS. When Brown 
finally announced it very tentatively and cautiously in his budget in 2002, it turned out to be the most popular budget he delivered. So it's doable, but you have to go through the barriers of fear about all of this. Anyway, that's very much about the NHS in England. Of course, Scotland has its own structures, as do Wales. Uh, but it is interesting, actually, that in the past, when putting the case in inverted commas for reform, uh, Cameron and indeed Blair have condemned the sort of the NHS structures in Scotland and so on. Now, what form they will go to next is not at all clear in terms of the detail, but clearly they're going to move away from a system which they hailed in contrast to those in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. So it's very interesting, and interesting too for those, I hope, watching from elsewhere, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, because it, it tells you a lot about English politics over the last 10, 15 years. And it does suggest Johnson is moving on from that sort of turbocharged Thatcherism. But we'll have to await the detail, and it's in a context where half his cabinet are unquestionably ideologically turbocharged Thatcherites. One to watch. Now, let us return to other issues, or turn to them, maybe return as well, with uh, your questions for this week. There have been loads and loads. I'm going to try and get uh, through as many as possible. And as I said at the beginning, this will be a guide to some of the other issues raging at the moment. We begin with uh, Paul Stokelis. Excuse the pronunciation, Paul, if that's not right, but I think it's Stokelis. And he asks, I very much enjoy listening to your podcast whilst walking with my dog, Angie, named after the Rolling Stones song. Oh, well, yeah, that's 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 a nice kind of thing to um, name your dog after. That was a great track. I like that track. It's a bit unstonesy, isn't it? It's rather, rather moving and slow. And yeah, Angie, good, good link so but you're not listening to angie and the stones you're listening to the podcast much better idea anyway paul asks or makes the point it seems to me that the impact of brexit appears to be even worse than predicted so i told you via the questions we get onto other urgent issues and this is an urgent issue even if parts of the media downplay it at the moment and paul says yeah the effects even worse than predicted in that beforehand, this is an interesting observation, nobody really considered the additional effect of UK and EU companies simply not bothering to trade due to all the extra red tape. Paul makes an interesting point because, of course, the fear was lorry queues going from Westminster to Dover in terms of their length and endless traffic jams, but instead... As he suggests, some companies aren't bothering at all. And that has led to empty shelves in some places, not least Northern Ireland, which is a huge story in itself. I'm writing a piece about that for uh, this week's New European. Anyway, given that, back to the question with Paul, given that this and all the other downsides of Brexit are likely to continue and not just be teething troubles, what do you think this or any future government's response might be? Do you think they'll just let the country take the economic and political consequences on the chin? Or will they have to eat humble pie? Particularly, as Philip Hammond pointed out, it's those in the red wall who'll pay the highest 
price. Philip Hammond being the ex-chancellor who's kind of, as I've said at some of my live shows in my time, he's kind of turned into Britain's Che Guevara, you know, this romantic rebel figure. Pro-European teenagers have photos of Philip Hammond on their wall. And he's just given this interview uh, for... I think the organization's called Britain in a Changing Europe or something like that. They're interviewing everybody involved in the whole Brexit process. Hammond's interview, you should go to their website, is fantastic. It's explosive. And he points out that they, the Red Wall voters will be one of the many victims. Well, I think it will unravel. but uh, And indeed, because the deal was so thin, Brexit isn't done, as we've talked about in a previous podcast. The political fallout is hard to analyze at this point. Uh, Voters never admit that they're wrong. They never reach that conclusion. They ask politicians to reach that conclusion of themselves. They never do. But they do conclude, for example, as some fishermen have done already, that they have been lied to or betrayed. And I think that could well be a developing emotion amongst some of those directly impacted listen to the DUP at the moment about the Irish protocol. But let's wait and see. Clearly, it's not yet done. Uh, David Fisher says, I have to say, I never exercise during the podcast, as I generally need something with a bit more of a rhythm for my workouts. Perhaps if someone did a drum and bass mix of or remix, as he puts it, of the podcast, I might consider it. Well, you've got, that's a great idea, David. I'll get a producer onto this. You will soon have a drum and bass remix where I look at NHS reforms, and you can run to it. But in the meantime, let's reflect on your question. Uh, Listening, oh, right, okay, I'll just go read this very quickly. Listening to another political podcast earlier this week, uh someone referenced how effectively the Tories weaponised the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008 as a means of undermining public confidence in Labour. Yeah, they did it with a sort of crudity that was nonetheless very effective. Given that the government has made such horrific missteps over the handling of the pandemic, Labour could surely adopt a similar strategy post-pandemic, one which would be far more grounded in truth than the post-financial crisis, than the post-financial crisis narrative. That would require Labour to have been more vocal in their criticism of the government throughout the pandemic, though, something they failed to do. Would this have been a viable and reasonable position for Labour to take? And if so, why do you think they failed to capitalise on this situation? Yeah, I mean, these are two huge emergencies. There's no doubt the Tories in opposition emerge much stronger from their critique of the financial crash. They somehow managed to blame the Labour government for the entire global crash through overspending, as if, you know, the trigger in the United States, which was a property crash or a mortgage borrowing crash, was down to a Gordon Brown spending decision in, you know, 2003. But they did it, and it changed the whole dynamic of British politics. It's harder with this one, in that, A, it's a long-running health crisis, And if there is a positive outcome in terms of the vaccines, as we, I think, reflected last week on, uh, or some of the questions did, it becomes harder, I think, for Labour in opposition. And the media always sets a much higher bar for Labour 
in opposition compared with the conservative opposition to turn this into something quite the way George Osborne in particular did with the crash. However, I think at times Keir Starmer has been far too restrained uh, in his critique. And at times the critique has just been posing questions at Prime Minister's questions and then moving on, whereas there have been elements of misjudgment that should have been really screamed from the rooftops and that hasn't happened and I think that is a kind of misjudgment. Now there's a related question here actually from Kathy Mears. She says, I've been entertained by Marina Hyde's latest column on Keir Starmer's leadership and her analysis of the qualities needed for electoral success. For those of you who don't read Marina Hyde in The Guardian, she writes a, a, a very funny column on a Saturday and here's a quote from Kathy this time. She says, this is Marina Hyde writing, as a voting body, our longest electoral affections have been reserved for the very biggest nutters. Thatcher and Blair, obvious nutters. Fast forward to the present day and Johnson, nutter. The message of the 2016 referendum was the euphoric nutting of David Cameron, a non-nutter. In fact, let me go out on a limb here and posit that the reason Jeremy Corbyn, full nutter, did better than expected against useless anti-nutter Theresa May in 2017 was simply because he was full nutter and the electorate was at some level strongly drawn to that. And Cathy suggests that uh, Starmer is not in the nutter category. It's an interesting new divide, nutters versus non-nutters. I think there, as you perhaps suggest, Cathy, one element of this which is true. You can call it nutterdom, but you must display a degree of, I don't know, almost idiosyncratic passion as part of your repertoire as a leader. And solidity is not necessarily of itself enough to woo a British electorate. You know, as I've said before, Labour tends to win when the juxtaposition is competence versus incompetence, if it's the Tory government that's deemed incompetent. But Blair didn't just portray solidity in the build-up to 97, nor did Wilson in the build-up to 1964. They display wit, passion. They gave the impression, it might have been false, but it was convincing of a forward-looking vision and purpose. And all those things are needed. Whether that means nutterdom uh, is a different question. But nutterdom, yeah, she's, she's funny. She's onto something with nutterdom. Uh, but it needs a bit more expansion. Uh, Oliver Lewis writes, uh, Hi, Steve. Now, this is, this is interesting uh, relating to Scotland and independence. Not Oliver Lewis. I'm sorry. He's referring to Oliver Lewis. Uh, Lee Whitehill, an exiled Scot in Hemel Hempstead who listens to the, the podcast while dog walking. That's two walkers uh, in a row. This is relatively passive compared to the activities pursued uh, whilst listening to the podcast. Um, anyway, it's quite interesting. Now that Oliver Lewis, nicknamed Sonic, who has remained in the government following the departure of old Kano, you know, Lee Kane and Dom Cummings. Uh, now, Oliver Lewis, whose nickname is Sonic, uh, for some reason, uh, was one of the players of the Vote Leave campaign. He was very involved with Brexit in number 10. It's interesting. He's now been put in charge of the unit set up to defend the union. 
and Lee wonders, do you think that a vote leave style campaign, one that's predicated on disinformation, targeted directly to segmented audiences via Facebook, will be able to shift opinion in Scotland? Well, it's interesting, this move, because although Johnson has said that he will refuse a referendum, even if the SNP wiped the board in the May elections for the Scottish Parliament, the move of this figure, who he obviously still rates, to deploy those vote-leave skills, in inverted commas, because I put them in inverted commas, because actually... I don't think the victory in the Brexit referendum was anything to do with vote leave or Cummings or any of them. My view has always been that the moment Cameron announced that referendum, he was doomed to lose it. Anyway, Johnson doesn't think that. He thinks it's down to people like this uh, figure. He's now moved in to focus on putting the case for the union in Scotland, Oliver Lewis. I think what he wants to do, Johnson is try and find ways in which you turn those opinion polls. Nicola Sturgeon will only want to hold a referendum when she knows she's going to win it. And if Johnson could turn those opinion polls a bit, she would become less determined to hold one in the near future, if she thought she could well lose it. She can't afford to lose a second, or the SNP can't, or the cause can't. Um, so I think that's what he's trying to do, try and turn opinion. I think the vote leave techniques are the last thing that will turn Scotland around. But I think that's the thinking. Dominic Martin uh, says, you said you would return to this in a future book. I'm going to quite soon. Uh, but uh, what do I think of the argument that Starmer should build an overt electoral alliance with the Lib Dems with a shared manifesto commitment to proportional representation. Quite a few questions about this. Of course, this is almost, almost what uh, Tony Blair did in the build-up to 97, got very close to Paddy Ashdown. There was a joint constitutional reform committee, people on it like Robin Cook for Labour, Ming Campbell for the Lib Dems. It worked extremely well in the build-up to the 97 election. Then, of course, key elements of it were dropped when Labour won a landslide, including electoral reform. And I think this dance is repeated so regularly, I don't think this is the way for a Conservative government to be defeated, actually, Dominic. But please, I'm going to do a bit more of this um, very soon. But please let me know why you think that will work. I think there's another uh, question from the last few days about uh, the need for an electoral pact in certain seats. Uh, so there is an anti-Tory majority at the next election. I I think these pre-election mechanisms are flawed, and the Lib Dems have got to start doing a lot better. Remember, Ashdown was in quite a formidable place as leader. He had very few seats in that 92 to 97 parliament, but they were doing okay, and Blair realised working with Ashdown would be quite useful to him, as it turned out to be. Um, but it didn't develop in government. And that was with Blair and Ashdown, two formidable figures. Uh, anyway, let's move on. More on that to come. Thank you, uh, Dominic, uh, who says, looking forward to King's Place. Yeah, we'll tune in uh, for that one because that parts of that will feature. Thank you. Graham McGregor writes, 
he makes an observation about the foot and mouth in 2001. Now, this echoes my opening thoughts, my Frankie Howard prologue, up Pompeii prologue, about what works in terms of delivery, kind of theme of last week as well. He makes the observation, 2001, foot and mouth epidemic marked by chaotic national response until the army was given operational responsibility and the flood emergencies, numerous where army works with local agencies, then to the 2020 pandemic where possible shortage of beds uh, addressed uh, with the Nightingale hospitals and the army and so on. Compare that with test and trace, a chumocracy uh, and it was a shambles. And uh, you make the point that really I was arguing about earlier in this podcast, clear lines of responsibility, and then you can get effective delivery in the UK, even with what tends to be the underspending of public services. If you do the chaos as with test and trace, you get chaos. So I, I completely agree with you. Uh, he, Graham wonders whether there's a centrally held file on how to respond to a national crisis not in such general terms but you watch them prepare surely for further pandemics in the light of this experience stephen townsley refers returns to brexit pointing out that the single promise made by boris johnson in 2019 was he would get brexit done Uh, now the brexit negotiations are starting again on northern ireland absolutely right this i think i said last week watch northern ireland it's going to just get bigger as a story and I noticed some pompous pundits like that guy from the Times Matt Chorley said oh, people are interested in Northern Ireland it signifies much the instability of that protocol um, and anyway is inherently important and uh, yeah Stephen points out that this was really the only slogan of the Tory victory in 2019 oven ready deal it's got Brexit done and it's not the negotiations are reopening on a central element of it. Uh, And as he points out, the open goal of Brexit has had an upgrade. And I know what he means by that. Uh, Keir Starmer has got to recognise that this is not inevitably a trap. It can also be an open goal if you play it rightly. Okay, I think we've got time. Let's just do one more. Uh, Richard Rose, he says, enjoy the podcast and usually get through two episodes on a decent walk. If running, I'd barely get through your introduction. Well, this is the greatest example yet of athleticism. Uh, If with a run, you don't get through. Oh, I see what you mean. You mean you give up on the run. You're not so fast that after an introduction, you've run 10k, which is the first thought I had. No, I, I get you. You just stop. So you're in the sort of dog walking category of this particular podcast in terms of absolute athleticism but a decent walk two episodes yeah that must be a lovely walk anyway my questions were on brexit again see brexit parts of the media are pretending it's gone away or have decided i can imagine bbc managers at some never-ending meeting saying that voters aren't interested you know and all this kind of thing and um they will have it thrust upon them again, even if they're not at the moment. Anyway, Richard points out, given the overwhelming support for the EU among young people and the shambles arising from the current deal, it seems to me only a matter of time before we rejoin the EU or at least the Single Market Customs Union. 
when do I think this might happen? And at what point does it become A, acceptable and B, advantageous for a party to take this stance? I don't think it, any of that is feasible for obvious reasons for this current government. So it partly depends on how long you think this current government and this current prime minister will be in place. If it's, it's certainly up until the next election, and if they win it, uh, it goes well beyond that. Uh, I think there will come a point, although he cannot phrase it like that, he, I think the silence of Keir Starmer is not a strategy, that if he got into number 10, he could move towards uh, the single market and the customs union position. I think in the end, that is inevitable. The only answer, as we've discussed before, to the Irish question is for, as Theresa May discovered, for the UK to join the customs union or for there to be a united Ireland. Somebody emailed and said there is a third, which is that Ireland leaves the European Union. Fair point, but they're not going to. So that's the only one. So I think we will move towards that. I think Keir Starmer has got to end his silence by critiquing the unravelling of that silly, shallow deal uh, unveiled triumphantly on Christmas Eve. But he won't be in a position to advocate the single market customs union, I suspect, at the next election. But uh, let's... Let's see. Should we do one more? Should we do one more from uh, uh, Paul Cooper, who says, um, Paul Cooper has been asking about the public inquiry into COVID in various ways. And I think we've all agreed that there won't be a COVID inquiry this year, or as he puts it, definitely not for the first six months. Yeah, absolutely not for the first six months, Paul. And given the continued death rate, uh, how do we know that the NHS has not already, in inverted commas, fallen over this winter? Uh, no government or NHS trust would ever admit this to uh, the public, but 10 years of public funding austerity, staff reductions and ongoing vacancies means that certainly clinical decisions to treat or not to treat have become absolutely at the centre of things already. Yeah, I mean, it's how you measure whether the NHS has been overrun. There is no suppression of an NHS which has been overrun with COVID patients. That is too precisely chronicled on a daily basis. But the degree to which that means everything else has all been delayed fatally in many cases does need much further monitoring. And that is a consequence of the underfunding which goes back to the other side of what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, that, uh, yes, uh, the NHS needs becoming much less atomized, but it also needs the funding. And Paul points out it takes ages to train these people, so you can't address some of these issues overnight. So, yeah, there there are big, big issues arising from the pandemic and the underfunding uh, that have to be addressed in the aftermath. I'm just going to do one more because it's interesting. This is from uh, Habib uh, Chowdhury. On, uh, re- oh yeah, back to this question about how you'd make big decisions, i.e. independence for Scotland, a united Ireland, and so on. Now, how do you do it without a border poll, given this is him to me, I oppose referenda on principle. What other democratic answer do you have for an Irish, Scots, uh, or indeed Catalonian question? 
Are you simply saying no ifs, no buts, no new countries? In other words, there is no decision mechanism, so nothing could happen. Yeah, an absolutely fair uh, question. I have coming round to the idea via this podcast, actually, Habib, I don't know if you heard some of the earlier ones where uh, people, listeners emailed in with examples from other countries where you have basically a sort of almost a collective education process in the build-up to a referendum. And there are mechanisms in place, and examples were given in Ireland, to some extent in Switzerland, of where this can be quite effective. So you can have actually informed referendum campaigns, not the hopeless Brexit one we had in 2016, which was, I mean, the only bit of informed information was when Blair and Major went to Belfast to warn about what would happen to Northern Ireland and the peace process, and no one paid any attention. And the campaign was just a sort of fantasy world. So I'm sort of coming around to maybe there are ways in which referendums can be conducted in a more informed way. But forgive me, I remain sceptical. And in my scepticism, I cannot answer your question. I don't know of the mechanism where this is done without a referendum. So you pose a perfectly fair question, which I can't really answer. What a pathetic, anticlimactic end to this podcast. Um, but the, there are tons of other questions which I had hoped to get through today. A, a great one from Andrew Anderson, who was uh, had the nobility of walking around the meadows listening to this and driving sleet and rain. Um, and he answers a question I posed or couldn't fully answer last week about the poll tax being imposed in Scotland a year earlier than the rest of the country in the Thatcher era and why that didn't trigger a rise in nationalism. He and indeed uh, Derek Light give definitive answers to that. Uh, Robbins uh, Murray's walking his dog in waterlogged fields. He is the other one proposing electoral reform which triggers another interesting discussion. Uh, Torin Page asks about Russia which is stretching my expertise but an absolutely urgent question and we got one from Simon Lockyer about Starmer and PMQs even gets a reference to Proustin. Uh, James Munro wonders about the qualities of Boris Johnson and Theresa May and who in prime ministerial terms were better or worse. Well, look, next week, um, because it's uh, a week when I'm doing the live show, there's kind of less of me, less of the spiel at the beginning, you know, the kind of prologue. Um, so that hopefully we'll get to some of those. And all the questions or a lot of the questions that you please keep them coming in this week and make points, anything uh, that's triggered your thoughts during uh, our time together this week. And yeah, we'll have time to get through more. I promise you that. That's a pledge. That's a, not a kind of Nick Lake tuition fees. But that is an election pledge. We'll get through more, uh, including some of those I've just summarized and and others. But thank you so much for listening. Don't forget, get your ticket for King's Place on February the 17th, where it's live and unfolds in ways you never know at the beginning. I come sit there thinking, I wonder how this is going to go. And it's always different. And I'll tell you more about it, what I'm going to focus on, but you'll have the freedom to focus on anything you like on that night, with a glass of wine or whiskey or something like that. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Uh, do write a review uh, or subscribe. Tell your friends to subscribe. And we will have the space together to make sense of it all. 
See you next week. Thanks very much. Bye.